Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Megan Brandall Faller, and I am Associate Professor of History at the City University of New York, Kingsborough. And today, I'm offering a lecture in conjunction with the Museum of German American Heritage in Washington, uh, D.C. The title of the lecture is called Factory Toys and Their Discontents, Artistic Toys in Germany and Austria, circa 1900. Now, um, the lecture today is designed to uh, complement the Museum of German American Heritage's current exhibition on German toys, and much of the information from this lecture comes from uh, my book, which is called Childhood by Design, Toys and the Material Culture of Childhood. Uh, the book um, is um, very new from Bloomsbury Academic Press, and there's a link to it at the bottom. Uh, so I'm the author of Childhood by Design, as well as um, a forthcoming monograph called The Female Secession from Penn State University Press. And um, some of my other research interests and publications appear in the bio um, under the YouTube video. But in any case, the subject of our lecture today is factory toys and their discontents, artistic toys in Germany and Austria. So we survey mainstream commercial toys and also look at so-called alternative um, artistic toys. In 1896, at the height of Wilhelmine, Germany, English journalist E.E. E. Williams published a best-selling pamphlet called Made in Germany. Made in Germany presented an ominous picture of German political military industrial dominance and an authoritarian political culture that was bent on challenging traditional English liberties. But the jingoistic watchword, made in Germany, extended beyond typical German commodities, like automobiles, chemicals, or steel, to the very products of German culture, Germanic opera, symphonies, and even art songs, Lieder. But worse yet was the way that German industrial dominance pervaded the English nursery. Quote, the toys, dolls, and the fairy books, which your children maltreat in the nursery, are also made in Germany." End quote. Jingoistic sentiments aside, Williams was right. By 1900, the German Kaiserreich dominated 60% of the global toy market, uh, a figure that paled in comparison to its almost complete domination of domestic consumption. 95% uh, of toys uh, consumed in Germany were also made in Germany. By the outbreak of the Great War, Germany the, the world toy leader accounted for 125 million marks in toy production, uh, most of which were exported to Britain and the United States. And this uh, production number was a figure that had jumped fourfold since 1890. Our lecture today examines factory toys and their discontents. First, we begin with common types of factory-made toys, um, including architectural toys, dolls, dolls, and dollhouses, and then survey the alternative. The alternative being found in so-called reform toys, or in German, the um, Künstlerische Spielzeug, the artistic toy. Um, these alternative toys were quite, quite different from mainstream commercial toys. Industrially produced toys, like these examples, privileged elaborate naturalistic detail that replicated the adult world in precise and painstaking detail. They also tended to privilege mechanical manipulation, 
technological artists, artifice, and often these toys were believed to embody specifically German values or design qualities. Now, as many as the as, me, as many of the essays in my book cover this um, claiming of national qualities in toys, often proved to be a highly contentious claim. For instance, this elaborate carousel by German firm Merklin, which was known by, for its precise model trains and miniatures, illustrates commercial toy makers' emphasis on accurate miniaturization. Likewise, manufacturers touted gender-specific ideologies and pushed building sets like these, the anchor uh, building sets, uh, to boys to shape them into engineers, architects, or inventors, and dolls and dollhouses to girls to train girls in maternal domesticity. But at the height of Germany's domination of the, the world toy industry, progressive reformers in Germany and Austria believed that gender-specific specific perfect toys, like those, with their elaborate mechanical devices, might initially dazzle the child, but would ultimately bore them and dampen their creative impulses. In the perfect world of technological miniatures, or perfect toys like these, the only possibility for creative activity was destructive, to, quote, destroy, in order to build it up again, end quote, as design um, critic and uh, reformer uh, Josef August Lux put it. Lux's fixation on children's impulse to destroy elaborate mechanical miniatures was not unique. A variety of reform toy proponents, including artists, pedagogues, and child psychologists, in the progressive journal Kinderkunst, uh, Child and Art, that was published by Alexander Koch, uh, repeatedly pointed to this tendency, this tendency of children to destroy toys, as well as how the invented toys of peasant children were infinitely better than the poor children of the rich. Now, the invented toy refers to something that um, wasn't uh, specifically designed as a toy at all, something that the children made into a toy through their imagination, a simple pot stick, for instance. The alternative, then, were so-called artistic toys, Künstlerische uh, Spielzeuge, or so-called reform toys, that were designed by modernist artists across Central Europe, in Vienna, Munich, Berlin, Dresden, and elsewhere. Rejecting how mass-produced miniatures replicated the adult world in painstaking detail, modernist artistic toys privileged a deliberately simplified, even primitivizing design language that was informed by traditional carved wooden Bauernspielzeuge, or peasant toys, like those produced by house labor, house labor in Germany and Austria's traditional toy-making regions. Um, this map here, uh, shows you some of the most important toy-making regions. For instance, the Erzgebirge in Saxony, uh, the Grodnertal in um, uh, the um, Austrian-Italian uh, borderlands, um, etc. Um, compare uh, the modernist artistic toys designed by Viennese artist and pedagogue Emit Zweibrook-Prohaska with the carved in wooden um, prototypes from her massive toy collection. Recalling a crude wooden horse she purchased at a Christmas market at a child, Zweibrück Prohaska posited linkages between art making and a childlike state of creativity. 
and suggested that her huge toy collection of folk art toys provided entree to her own childhood and her toys intended users. The best playthings were, quote, made by children or people who worked like children, half playing, half dreaming. Artists and peasants hit the true childlike note, end quote. Folk art toys from regions like the Erzgebirge, um, Sonneberg, and the Nuremberg regions, as well as the Grodnertal, uh, not only provided conceptual and formal inspiration in their simple, supposedly simple, and even uh, supposedly primitive qualities, but thematic subject matter, as artists reinterpreted common types and characters. For instance, the common thematic subject matter of the Noah's Ark set. Viennese art student Marie von Ucadius superimposed modernist aesthetics onto folk art versions of Noah's Ark. So here is a traditional um, model from the 19th century and based her new modernist Noah's Ark on figures on a study of actual animals in Vienna's Schoenbrunn uh, Zoo. But you can see it is, um, it is simplified. It is uh, even uh, uh, arguably more um, uh, simple than the uh, folk art model. Um, the set won Ucadia's international acclaim and prizes and was featured in the art and design uh, journal um, studio. Uh, the precise details and visual qualities of these so-called Kunstrische uh, Spielzeuge varied. Um, here, for instance, we see a so-called Dresdener Spielzeug, a Dresden uh, reform toy, that was produced by the Dresden workshops according to the designs of Richard uh, Riemerschmidt around 1904. In Dresden, uh, the reform toys tended to be constructed from two-dimensional planes. They tended to be planar and flat like this. Whereas, for instance, in Vienna, uh, the artist of the Vienna Secession had a somewhat different um, approach. Viennese reform toys tended to be turned at the turner's lathe, much like folk art models, and reflected a Viennese penchant for decorative sophistication. And especially in the case of this particular toy maker, um, the art student and Wiener Werkstätte collaborator Fanny Harflinger Satsuka, she was very much interested in historical costume and um, golden ages from the Habsburg past. Here we see uh, toys depicting the Rococo era. But to make a generalization of what these um, German and Austrian artistic toys were like in general, uh, they tended to be characterized by extreme formal simplifications or imperfections that were influenced by folk art models, um, by their handmade wooden construction, an emphasis on the materiality and wholesomeness of wood, um, they tended to emphasize gender neutrality and open-ended creativity rather than gender-specific prescriptive play. So for instance, you know, these figurines, um, there's no instructions, there's no narrative. Uh, supposedly, children used them according to their own imagination. Um, and in terms of their visual qualities, they were characterized by, characterized by a simplified, childlike aesthetic that was influenced by the grammar and syntax of children's drawings, as well as folk art models. 
Now, this emphasis on the childlike was entirely consistent with modernist design culture in general. Modernist design culture, as I detail in my book, was shaped by a search for a childlike aesthetic, new forms and styles intended to express, express the experience of childhood, rather than the miniaturized versions of adult furniture that was characteristic of prior cent centuries. Compare the rigid formality of this 17th century high chair or standing stool with the playful informality of the artistic nursery suite that was shown at the 19 1908 Vienna Kunschau exhibition. Uh, the 1908 Kunschau exhibition was the Vienna Secession's most important exhibition of art and design and something that we will um, return to. Uh, in any case, if you're wondering what these um, things are. This is a high chair. Um, before the 18th century, um, children's furniture forms were very rare. Um, aside from uh, furniture, you know, um, handmade in the home. Um, this here, what you see here is called a standing stool. And a standing stool is similar to a, a modern uh, 20th century walker, but without the seat. So the standing stool did exactly what the title promised. It forced infants, uh, babies as early as six months, into early standing. And this really reflected pre-modern Europe's uh, fundamental, fundamental ambivalence with um, infancy and childhood. Uh, infants were um, regarded as not fully human and uh, literally walking a tightrope, not walking, uh, between civilized uh, humanity and um, uh, their sort of bestial animal nature. And uprightness was associated with civilized humanity and crawling with um, babies, children's bestial nature. So um, largely reflecting a religious influence, there was an emphasis on um, forcing children to stand as early as possible, which was accomplished through this device of the standing stool. Um, in any case, the, the point is that prior to the 20th century, what children's furniture did exist tended to be conceived in miniaturized versions of adult styles and was formal and stiff. But around the turn of the 20th century, uh, design culture now sought something new, looking for a childlike, playful aesthetic, a childlike look. Now this nursery was described as an overfilled children's paradise of toys and bristled with a rebellious dialogue between the polka-dotted wall covering the uh, rectangle-patterned carpet, difficult to see, and a very unique uh, nursery suite that we see in the back, as well as this playful frieze called Improvised Parade that we see on the ceiling. Now, in the rest of the lecture, we will study, as case studies, three types of factory toys and then survey the discontents. And we will look at dolls, doll houses, and construction sets. Around, and we begin with dolls. Around 1900, dolls ranked as the most common toy produced in Imperial Germany. Dolls were produced in factories and cottage industries throughout the German Empire, but above all, it was the Sonneberg region that was most closely associated with doll making. In the Sonneberg, no less than 50% of the population worked in doll making, and uh, dolls produced there accounted for over two-thirds of German exports. Heads, uh, doll heads were formed from porcelain or bisque, 
and limbs and body parts were fashioned from wood or paper mache. Um, the um, industry was marked by various technological innovations. Around 1880, around 1880 Heinrich uh, Steyer of Sonneberg introduced the cup and ball joint to which opening and closing eyes were added. And these were worked by a lead counterweight. Now, it's not my purpose here to go over all of these technological innovations, but this sort of thing, the opening and closing eyes, were the precisely the, the sort of naturalistic detail, mechanical trick that toy reformers buckled against. Indeed, both in America and Germany, the 19th century was the age of the mechanical living doll that was designed by male entrepreneurs and male um, inventors or engineers. And this idea of the living doll can be exemplified by Thomas Edison's 1878 phonograph doll, a doll that spoke and came with changeable records, or this doll shown here invented by uh, Joseph Lyon in 1862, which was an automatic walking doll. During the 19th century, French entrepreneurs imported large numbers of cheap dolls from the Sonneberg in Germany and dressed and outfitted them in Parisian workshops before reselling them globally and marketing them as the French fashion doll La Parisienne. So ironically, the celebrated French fashion doll had at least sometimes hidden German roots. As detailed in my book, there was vigorous competition between French and uh, German doll makers as French critics assailed German dolls as less sophisticated, less refined, less civilized than the more sophisticated, supposedly French fashion dolls. But, the, but did these discursive claims speak to any um, actual material reality is a question that you can consider. In any case, in the children's book um, in English uh, titled A Doll's Education that was published in 1852, a French girl rejects a German wooden doll in favor of, quote, a beautiful doll, nice and big, with a pretty face, that is to say, not German, and badly dressed like a circus performer. In another children's book, uh, another French children's book called Queen of the Dolls, the living dolls unmask one of their own as a grotesque specimen, a cheap imitation from Nuremberg who spoke French in a strong German accent. So again, as I mentioned, ironically, um, a significant number of French fashion dolls that were marketed globally as being French were actually produced and made in Germany. In a broader sense, on the subject of fashion dolls, many objects such as dolls, toy soldiers, and miniatures that today are unproblematically associated with the child book, childhood toy box actually originated as adult amusements or served very different spiritual functions. As material stand-ins for the human or divine, German historian Max von Bohm argued in his groundbreaking uh, 1929 study, Dolls, uh, that while dolls could be traced back to ancient and prehistoric cultures, these early dolls were hardly children's playthings. Rather, as indexed by the etymology of the German word Puppe, um, which was derived from the Latin for votive image, early dolls were primarily used for cultic and funereal rituals and were only cast off to children much later. 
Indeed, fashion dolls have always had a problematic relationship with childhood, something that considers to, that continues even today. And uh, dolls were actually never originally intended for children at all. In medieval Europe, miniature fashion mannequins were exchanged and collected by aristocratic women to circulate information about clothing styles and accessories. And these were the earliest dolls, fashion mannequins. The first recorded fashion doll was commissioned in 1396 uh, from the French court tailor to Charles VI for Queen Isabella of England. Only when the mannequins had outlived their fashionable utility were they discarded and passed on, on to children. As early as 1413 and 1465, the uh, Dokenmacher, Ott and Mess, are mentioned in Nuremberg records. Uh, Dokenmacher um, is a term for doll maker. So Doka is the archaic German term for doll, and Dokenmacher was a term that referred both to doll makers and also to toy makers in general. This conceptual fluidity between the realms of childhood and adulthood uh, was very characteristic of the medieval toy in general, if we can even call toys prior to 1800 that a toy. In the, 17 and, in the 17th and 18th centuries, the word toy indexed material objects of an inconsequential nature, things like trinkets, baubles, miniatures, automata, whether cheap or pricey, and um, the toy could be intended to amuse children and adults alike. Um, toys weren't necessarily something intended exclusively for children. The entry for toy in Samuel Johnson's English Dictionary actually made no special reference to childhood at all. It was not until the Enlightenment that the word toy came to refer to a special and separate category of objects for children, what I refer to into my book as um, a childhood by design. Prior to the 18th century in early modern Europe's no toy culture, the toy did not exist, at least in its modern usage as an object intended exclusively, exclusively for children's play and education. Now this does not count self-fashion playthings that were fashioned by children or parents themselves. Um, these had existed ac across the um, ages. Aside from simple playthings fashioned by children or parents themselves, the distinguishing characteristic of pre-18th century toys was their rarity. The sort of jousting metal knight figures, like these that belonged to the Emperor Maximilian, were only accessible to a privileged and royal noble elite and were specifically commissioned from special artisans. So in a broad and general sense, there was really no toy industry or you know, uh, until after the Enlightenment. Um, so in any case, we were talking about the root of the doll for adult women and the root of the doll as a fashion mannequin. However, by the late 19th century, female artists and entrepreneurs began creating new types of reform dolls that broke dolls' long-standing linkages with women and adult fashion to create dolls, uh, for the very first time, that began to look far more like children and babies and no longer like miniature adults. In the German Kaiserreich, artists like Kette Kruse and Marion Kaulitz 
created a new type of handmade, gender-neutral character doll that was more individualized and childlike than mass-produced models. Such artists challenged the artificial monstrosity of the living mechanical doll, the sort of things we looked at before, to create soft, deliberately simple dolls that actually resembled real babies and children. Cruz's American contemporary, uh, Martha Chase, uh, made similar um, reform dolls and introduced special lines of realistic baby dolls for the very first time, baby dolls. These dolls reflected pro progressive discourses on scientific motherhood or the idea that motherhood should be elevated to a profession requiring specialized scientific training and not maternal instinct. Chase's hospital baby, for instance, was widely used in uh, baby clinics, mothers' clubs, and schools to teach infant hygiene to working-class mothers. So again, the idea of the um, doll that looked like a baby was really a late 19th century innovation. In Germany, a new type of character doll reflected similar impulses as Chase. Made by hand from soft materials and entirely lacking the jointed limbs, blinking eyes, and talking features characteristic of mainstream factory toys, character dolls were designed to resemble actual children and not miniature adults. In contrast to the frozen stare of the fashion doll, the faces of character dolls were individualized and personalized with distinct expressions and characters. Even as character dolls were supposed to stimulate maternal feelings in girls, they likewise reflected an emphasis on gender neutral play. Uh, character dolls depicted both boys and girls, and the dolls themselves were largely interchangeable between male and female. They were gendered through clothing, and um, the dolls depicted both boys and girls, and were intended to be played with by both girls and boys alike. Germany's character doll movement was born out of the personal and professional frustrations of artists like Kevin Kruse, who was slotted into a narrow role as mother and housewife. Kruse was born in Breslau and was the illegitimate, illegitimate daughter of a civil servant and seamstress. Uh, she was raised in poor circumstances by her mother and later um, pursued a uh, career as a stage actress and moved to Berlin. Um, during her stage career, she married the much older sculptor, Max Kruse, who actually ridiculed her artistic ambitions and demanded that she give up active, acting as a condition for marriage. Uh, they um, had eight children, and despite her genuine pleasure in raising their, their children, Keta later admitted that it was precisely her husband's patronizing attitude um, that motivated her artistic pursuits in doll making. Her husband was a negative muse of sorts. As a mother, Cruza became disgusted with male-designed factory dolls. During a vacation in Italy around um, 1908, Cruza's daughter Maria asked for a doll that would be like, quote, a real child. Um, Cruza's husband had remained behind in Germany, in uh, Berlin to work. So Cruza immediately wrote her husband to send a doll from Berlin. But Max refused and encouraged his wife to make one herself. As he said, how can one 
awaken motherly instincts uh, with a cold, hard, stuffed doll. Make one yourself. A better chance to develop yourself artistically you will not find. So she took him up on this advice. Cruza took a wash rag and filled it with sand and tied knots in all four corners to serve as arms and legs. Finally, she sewed a potato into the top of the rag to serve as a head into which she carved features. And this was it, this first potato doll. Her daughter was, quote, ecstatic and loved the doll with religious fervor. She came to the conclusion that the doll, which her daughter had named Oscar, had awakened the child's pr protective motherly instincts. In time, she came to model many of her early character dolls after her own children. Cruza felt that women, that women were best suited to do, to do uh, doll design precisely because they um, understood nurturing in a way men did not because of their uh, traditional and conventional roles as wives and mothers. As Cruza wrote, I knew exactly what a doll had to be, a union of the primitive and the natural and something to love that awakens love, end quote. Based on their supposed mental closeness and even psychic co-identity with children, such perceptions of women artists' suitability for toy making persisted throughout the 20th century, both in contemporary discourse and in subsequent historiography. Uh, similarly, as early as 1904, Munich artist Marion Cowlitz also experimented with soft handmade dolls that were retailed in department stores and through exclusive craft workshops. Also childlike, the Cowlitz dolls were distinctive for their regional uh, and folk dress, as you see here. But probably the most notable aspect of the entire character doll movement was their transformative effect on mainstream um, consumer culture, on factory toys. Uh, Keta Cruza first uh, showed her dolls publicly in 1910 and received great public and critical acclaim. She first uh, showed them at um, a Berlin uh, department store called the, Var uh, the Warenhaus Tietz. Um, and after this, uh, she began to um, branch out globally. American orders from toy, re toy retailers like F.A.O. Schwartz prompted Cruza to establish her own workshops in 1911 and eventually larger workshops in Bad Kosen. The Cruza Forum operated with much success and even still exists today under different ownership. But beyond the Keta Cruza brand, Cruza widely impacted mainstream doll design. Toy trade journals noted the emergence of a so-called hybrid doll, which blended the individualized features of handmade art dolls like Cruza's with the mechanical features and uh, tricks, if you will, if of mainstream mass-produced methods, like opening and closing eyes. So these hybrid dolls were a blend of the handmade artistic toys with the technological innovations of factory toys. Much like dolls, dollhouses, so we're moving on to our second case study, uh, dollhouses. Much like dolls, dollhouses have an equally problematic re um, re uh, history of fluctuating between the worlds of children and uh, grown-ups. And as a form, 
were particularly associated and originated in Germany and Holland. The early modern doll cabinet, or in German Dockenhaus, uh, tended to serve two contradictory functions in the 16th and 17th century. First, these dollhouses provided didactic lessons on material culture and household management to elite children. And second, and probably much more importantly, uh, the dollhouse served as a miniature display of the material affluence and uh, family status and collecting practices of princely or patrician households. In fact, the evidence suggests almost overwhelmingly that the earliest German dollhouses were highly exclusive artworks intended for display in the Kunstkammer or collector's cabinet of adult, collector, of adult collectors. With the early dollhouses, any connection to childhood was marginal at best. Um, so typically, the dollhouse uh, was most typically a replica of the commissioner's own residence on, on miniature. And the overall purpose of these very early 16th and 17th century doll cabinets was to document the family's material wealth and collecting practices. It was a miniature version of their own residence. And in essence, it served to make the collector's domestic residence an object worthy of conclusion. Uh, I'm sorry, um, the overall purpose of the early dollhouse was serving to make the collector's domestic residence an object worthy of inclusion in the uh, collector's cabinet or Kunstkammer itself. The house was now a part of the Kunstkammer. The first well-documented uh, dollhouse or doll cabinet was commissioned in 1558 for the curiosity cabinet of Duke Albrecht V of Bavaria. Nonetheless, it did not survive, so we must imagine its appearance from uh, similar dollhouses. This dollhouse uh, dates from uh, 1639 in Nuremberg. Uh, nonetheless, Albrecht's dollhouse was meticulously inventoried, documented, and described by travelers. Following the precedent of Albrecht's opulent uh, Dolchenhaus, in German, male and female collectors spent sizable fortunes on the creation and decoration of doll cabinets that featured sumptuously appointed interiors that included miniature picture galleries, porcelain cabinets, porcelain cabinets, fully stocked linen, linen closets, finely crafted miniature furniture, and elaborate kitchenware. If you look closely, you can see that here. So again, like dolls, the earliest doll houses were for adults, not children. When the trend of commissioning model houses spread from Germany to the elite of Georgian England, it was not uncommon that well-known artisans, designers, and architects were recruited to execute the interiors and build the miniature dollhouse. For instance, in the 1730s, Lady Susanna Wynne commissioned Robert Adam and Thomas Chippendale to execute the interiors of a miniature version of their house in Yorkshire. And um, the miniature uh, and the house uh, still exist today. But the dual functions of early doll cabinets overlap. They were, on the one hand, displays of princely wealth, but also were didactic texts, um, learning tools for elite children. 
Another early example, another um, early example was a grand scale um, kitchen that featured elaborate, elaborate pewter vessels and cooking accessories and was commissioned on Christmas 1572 for the three daughters of Anna Electress of Saxony. Now, however, the primary evidence suggests that the purpose of this dollhouse was somewhat different from the ones we looked at um, before. Primary evidence suggests that it actually served more instructional purposes to educate the, the three young princesses in household management and domesticity and was not just an adult collector item. Several decades later, uh, the uh, childless widow from Nuremberg, Anna Koeflerin, advertised her elaborate 1631 model of a burger townhouse and advertised it to paying visitors in a pamphlet. She touted her dollhouse as a tool for teaching domestic order and household management to young children, both male and female alike. Her advertising broadsheet survived, and it described her dollhouse as fitted with all of the accoutrements of a prosperous burger home. Koflerin explicitly states her intention that it serve as an example of correct household management to, quote, to, uh, quote, provide instruction for the young. Dear children, look you well at everything. How well it is arranged. It shall be a good lesson to you. End quote. At the same time, Kiflunin's house was not just for girls. She wanted boys to take special lessons from the outfitting of the armory and the overall run of the household. Even as consumption of dollhouses began to be democratized through mass production methods in the 18th and 19th centuries, the dollhouse's fluctuation between the conceptual realms of childhood and adulthood persisted. Dollhouses were often equipped with glass doors fitted with locks, and it was questionable then whether the dollhouse was actually intended for children's enjoyment if they weren't allowed to, to use it except under close adult supervision. The 19th century also witnessed the peak of popularity of a distinct subset of dollhouses. Uh, the um, single room dollhouse, uh, like this one here, that was called the, um, in English, the Nuremberg Kitchen, or in German, the Puppenkuche, the doll kitchen. Uh, the name, Nuremberg Kitchen in English, references the hub of the German toy industry where they were produced from the 18th century onwards. Nonetheless, these Nuremberg kitchens were made all over Germany and were seen by many to be a particularly Germanic form. Uh, some of the first images of miniature kitchens are found in the 1803 catalog of the famous German toy wholesaler Georg Bestelmeier, and this is his toy catalog here. Uh, Bestelmeier was a toy wholesaler who obtained stock from numerous home-based artisans and craftsmen to resell um, to retailers uh, throughout Germany and abroad. Now, cottage industry, home industry, home industry, was really a very critical part of the German toy industry. Typical of the toy industry in general, in general, cottage industry piece workers uh, included whole families and children um, who labored according to to sort of uh, primitive um, assembly line methods 
and these cottage industry peaceworkers were were paid below sustenance wages, which allowed retailers to market toys, uh, for instance, like doll kitchens, at affordable prices. But um, again, cottage industry peaceworkers in the German toy industry included whole families and children themselves. A great irony not unnoticed by toy, toy reformers, the children who made various types of toys like dolls, um, other um, objects, would never have been able to afford them themselves. Um, in any case, with the issue of the uh, toy kitchen, um, by the end of the 19th century, mass production by firms like uh, Brothers Bing and Merklin reduced prices further, making them affordable to middle class uh, consumers. A 18th or 19th century uh, Nuremberg kitchen tended to have a raised hearth beneath a smoke hood on its rear, rear wall that was flanked by cabinets and shelving. Indeed, the most striking feature of this unique subset of dollhouse, the, the Nuremberg kitchen, the most striking feature of these dolls' kitchens tended to be their various and sundry content, contents. They were made in vivid detail in quote-unquote real materials like wood por and porcelain and represented kitchen gadgets as diverse as ice cream makers to sausage grinders and, of course, cooking accessories. Manufacturers of mainstream consumer products like Meissen or Villeroy and Bach, um, etc., often made smaller duplicates of their wares in the same pattern as the full-scale versions. And these uh, sort of products served as enduring advertisements for brand loyalty. They were introduced to the brands as children and hopefully would want to purchase the full-scale versions of the toys later. Now, were these kitchens actually intended to school young girls in cookery and domestic management? The answer might be less obvious than it seems. The cooking implements were fully functional and parents could even purchase their children specialized cookbooks for the doll kitchen. But as detailed in my book, recent research reveals that the purpose of the Nuremberg kitchen was perhaps less to impart the practical skills of cooking because it's pretty difficult to prepare a full course meal into specials, but perhaps the purpose of the Nuremberg Kitchen was more, um, was more inspirational. Uh, was it to allure and seduce and beguile young girls uh, into their future role as housewife and house manager through the peculiar allure of the miniature? So recent research reveals that the purpose of the Nuremberg Kitchen was less to actually uh, teach girls the practical skills of cooking, but to uh, allure, seduce, and beguile them into their future role as house manager through the peculiar allure of the miniature, the peculiar special qualities of miniature objects. Less about practical cooking lessons, it was to excite young girls with the sheer material abundance of the household accessories that she, too, one day would own in full scale. At the turn of the 20th century, criticism of dolls and doll houses figured prominently in pedagogical journals like uh, Kinden Kunst, Child and Art, and toy reformers argued that dollhouses had always been designed 
to suit the artistic pretensions of adults and not children, and hence were not a good toy. Were then modernist reformed dollhouses any different? Well, as a case study, let us examine a famous secessionist dollhouse that was shown as a part of the uh, Vienna Secession's landmark 1908 Kunstschau exhibition. So we're going to look at um, Viennese uh, secessionist toy design. As way of introduction, the Vienna secessionists were a group of modern artists breaking away from Vienna's conservative artist guild in 1897 in search of artistic freedom and new exhibition opportunities. As a group, the Vienna secessionists were preoccupied with stylistic and metaphorical rebirth and youthfulness. A further split ensued in 1905 when the Progressive Klimt Group, the uh, group of artists around Gustav Klimt, when the Progressive Klimt Group broke with the rump secession. Um, and this split was largely connected to the founding of the Vienna workshops, the Wiener Werkstätte, and its valorization of the decorative or supposedly minor arts. Founded in 1903, the Wiener Werkstätte, the Vienna workshops, was a commercial design venture that attracted the secession's leading members as collaborators. Commencing production with metalwork, the Wiener Werkstätte expanded to encompass compass leatherwork, bookbinding, architecture, and late in 1905, a new line of books, games, furniture, and toys intended to bring art into the nursery. And here we see toys designed by Fanny Hartlinger Satsuka and Minka Pohajka, who were art students together. Wiener Werkstätte co-founders, Josef Hoffmann and Coleman Moser, believed that finely crafted furniture and handmade wooden toys uh, could not only uh, beautify everyday life, but usher in closer contacts between artists, craftsmen, and societies. Artists, craftsmen, and society. Now, the Vienna workshops were loosely based on the example of um, various English arts and crafts workshops, but um, sort of without the socialistic um, um, reforms of many of the English um, uh, uh, workshops. In any case, Wiener Werkstätte Toys debuted in late 1905 at its December 1905 exhibition at the Gallery Mietke, which marked the Klimt Group's first public appearance since breaking with the secession that year. Uh, toys like this were featured in special issues of Kindenkunst, as well as the English journal The Studio. But probably the most important exhibition of toys and objects for children by the Vienna Secessionists was the 1908 Kunstschau exhibition. Presenting the public with didactic examples of the Wiener of the Wiener Werkstätte philosophy of functional beauty, functional beauty from the cradle to the grave, the Klimt Group showcased their serious commitment to art for and by children at its landmark 1908 Kunstschau exhibition. Now the um, 1908 Kunstschau exhibition was the Vienna Secession's most important exhibition of art and design and is looked at by many scholars as the height of its um, ideal of the total work of art or Gesamtkunstwerk. Now this ex exhibition, by the way, remains best known 
for showcasing many of Gustav Klimt's most famous uh, portraits of women, like his Adela Blochbauer, shown here. But it was also an exhibition that showcased toys and art by children. The Vienna Secessionists were some of the first avant-garde artists in Europe who believed that children's art was important enough to hang next to their own. To encourage visitors to recapture the aesthetic objectivity of childhood, the Kunschel's first gallery showcased torn paper collages by children. Um, and as I mentioned, this was one of the very first time that avant-garde artists showcased children's art next to their own. Um, the complement of the Gallery of Children's Art was Gallery 29, entitled Art for the Child. Art for the Child was dedicated to female art students' innovations in children's book illustration, toy design, and furniture design. On view was an artistic nursery suite, shown here, that appropriated the grammar and syntax of untutored children's drawings, as well as a folk art-inspired chess set, as I'll show you in just a second, and this exquisite modernist dollhouse that we'll look at a bit closer. Now, we'll look closely in particular at the dollhouse, but let's look at some of the other artistic toys that were on display. The female art students that showed their work at Art for the Child, now if you look closely, you can see that these, that these um, figurines were on top of the nursery suite here. The female art students showing their work at Art for the Child took conceptual and formal inspiration from traditional folk art toys and were particularly fascinated with the stylized anonymity and deliberately quote-unquote primitive simplification achieved by construction at the turning lathe. Modernist artists like the art student Fanny Harflinger Zatsuka adapted the turning lathe for her design. This stiff but lively rococo pair by Fanny Harflinger Zatsuka, like she showed at the uh, Kunschau exhibition, um, were loosely based on folk art models, but likewise reflected Vini's modernist aesthetics. Uh, this stiff but lively, lively rococo pair retained secessionist toys' typical bowling pin shape and were prized by toy reformers for their simplicity uh, that, required children's that required children's imagination to animate the toy. So they entirely lacked technological tricks and features like opening and closing eyes, obviously. A similar trend towards formal, extreme formal simplification can be seen in her take, in Fanny Harflinger Suzuka's take on the trope on the trope of the Turk figurine. Now this was a type of stock character traditionally manufactured in toy making centers as incense burners or candle holders. Given the historical relationship between the Ottoman Turks and the Habsburgs, whereby the Habsburgs represented the West easternmost bulwark against the Ottoman infidels, uh, these Turk uh, figurines, these caricatures, would have really been charged with meeting for Austrian audiences. Now, these Turk figurines really conveyed a similar sort of racism um, as caricatured figurines of blacks in the United States from the very same period. Um, now, what I'm referring to, um, these characterized figurines of blacks were mechanical 
um, toys, mechanical devices like banks, um, that visualize racial stere stereotypes in jerky puppet-like movements with exaggerated features and um, in a general sense reflected a similar sort of racism. But as I mentioned, the turf figurine was a trope in toy making regions. Traditional 19th century versions like the Turk candle holders and incense burners uh, shown here that were produced in uh, the Siphon region of the Escoberga uh, featured stereotypical attributes like the pipe, turban, and mustache, not so dissimilar from the modernist versions, and often uh, demonstrated sophisticated painting and decorative use of gold leaf. So here are 19th century versions, and here are um, the artistic um, reinterpretation of that. But compared to traditional models, the formal simplicity of Harflinger Suzuka's figurines is even more extreme, and much like children's drawings, left out non-essential details like limbs entirely. So here you see these are much more complex uh, than the simplification of these. Harflinger Suzuka left out non-essential details like limbs entirely, um, although she paints on hands what would have been atypical of traditional models. Also shown at the 1908 Kunschel was a folk art-inspired chess set by art students Fanny Harflinger Sasuka and Minka Pohajka. Their wooden chess set evokes the bold colors and crude and supposedly crude forms of vernacular folk toys, um, but likewise was inflected with modernist aesthetics. It's designed superimposed a sense of childlike or folkish naivete onto secessionist design principles, particularly in the checkerboard pattern bordering the queen figure's clothing. Uh, if you look closely in the installation photograph, you can see the chess set, although it's hard to see. Um, now we'll look at this, the dollhouse. Of all of the objects displayed in Art for the Child, it was an elaborate secessionist dollhouse that best embodied the progressive pedagogical philosophies and tensions underlying art for the child and the artistic toy movement. Now, the secessionist dollhouse was designed by Magna Mountner Markov. Ma Magna Mountner Markov. Uh, Mount, uh, uh, she was the sister of graphic artist Edith Moser and was the sister-in-law of Binovekshire to co-founder Coleman Moser. The dollhouse presented viewers with visual tricks and raised questions on the degree to which art for the child's seemingly contradictory premises could actually be in harmony. That is, to what, to, to what degree could the privileging of a childlike visual perspective uh, be in harmony with the desire to inculcate children's appreciation of secessionist design? So could something be uh, childlike as well as um, teach lessons on good design at the same time? Or were these qualities mutually exclusive? On the surface, Mountner Markov's secessionist dollhouse reflected the epitome of the Kunschel's ideology of functional beauty in miniature. And this was the idea of bringing art into everyday life. Here we're bringing art into the nursery, bringing art into play. 
the exterior and interior of the dollhouse can contain clear references to secessionist architecture. In particular, it contained um, strong references to Josef Hoffmann's building projects on the Hohe Now, this was a Garden City art artist colony on the outskirts of Vienna. The play villas, architectural style, in particular the uh, gabling, the large bay windows, landscaping, and terrace, quoted the Hohe recently completed house mall. So you can compare this to this. Nods towards the rectilinear geometricity of early Wiener Werkstatt design are omnipresent in the interior. The interior of the dollhouse makes use of Hoffmann's trademark square pattern as a decorative ceiling border, as well as the Wiener Werkstatt's stylized uh, rose uh, logo as uh, wallpaper. In comparing the dollhouse's black and white checkered staircase to the one in the House Hennenberg in the Hoavata, it is often difficult to forget which one is real and which one is miniature. Um, the same applies to the dollhouse's formal dining room. Um, the uh, dining room uh, in the dollhouse was painted to suggest paneled marble and black painted pickled oak furniture. And this seems to have been loosely inspired by the dining room in the Palais Stockle, uh, which was a very important um, famous commission of the Wiener Werkstätte in Brussels, Belgium, which is viewed as the most complete realization of the total work of art. Now, in talking about being um, easy to confuse which one is the real, which one is the miniature, it's sort of a funny story. Once in a publication, um, the image captions got switched and the dollhouse was labeled as the real and the real as the dollhouse. Fortunately, we caught that in um, copy editing. Contemporary critics were not sure what to make of the dollhouse's references to secessionist design. Uh, secessionist critic Ludwig Havesi, always known for his humor, gently poked fun at the completeness of the dollhouse interiors and declared that modern dolls were so demanding that only residence, residences furnished, quote, right down to the last little piece of furniture and even complete with gardens would satisfy uh, the demanding modern doll. Quote, a wealthy modernist doll who has recently married, a, a wealthy modernist doll who has recently married can hardly wish for a more comfortable or more intelligent home. Ready to move in immediately. I believe that only the bed and table linens need to be embroidered. Despite similarities with past dollhouses that reformers criticize, Meltner Markov's dollhouse, dollhouse was driven by reformist impulses. Its form was outwardly modernist, and its design placed minimal emphasis on conditioning girls for the future role of housewife. Totally absent from this dollhouse were the elaborate miniature domestic gadgets, like those found in doll kitchens, that were supposed to instill housewifely duties in girls. Moreover, unlike most high art dollhouses, none of the play villa, none of the play villa's interior spaces were clearly defined as a particular model room. The simple geometric furniture that was designed for it, the simple geometric furniture was largely interchangeable among all of the rooms and permitted the child to redecorate it well and suggested that perhaps the child did have room for fantasy. 
if Maltner Markov's dollhouse did promote any future vocation, it was that of a connoisseur, someone who appreciated modernist art and design in her daily life. Yet, like similar dollhouses from previous centuries, its perfect self-contained design, which replicated the secessionist worldview in miniature, differed little from that of the mass-produced toys that toy reform reformers so ridiculed. And indeed, it was the opposite of the invented toy, animated only by the child's imagination. So was this too artistic to be appreciated by children? Was this really designed with children in mind? Surely, as one reviewer reasoned, children would prefer a normal doll over ornate mansions that could only be touched under close supervision. So ironically then, despite all of its reformist impulses, the secessionist dollhouse seems to revert back to the function of the very earliest doll cabinets that were typically commissioned by the adult collectors to depict their own res residents as worthy of inclusion in the uh, Kunstkammer in miniature. This um, very well have uh, may have reflected the uh, preferences of adult collectors rather than the children for whom it is destined. We don't know in the absence of written, written sources generated by children themselves. So uh, thus far we have um, briefly looked at two types of uh, factory toys and artistic versions thereof, dolls and doll houses. And we will conclude by examining one final type of factory toys and the alternative, and this would be building blocks and construction toys. In a loose sense, 19th century construction toys were rooted in the tradition of educational toys initiated by John Locke and Friedrich Froebel. Uh, in his famous treatise on education, John Locke not only called for the recognition of childhood as a separate stage of human development, but put forth the radical idea that learning should be enjoyable, learning should be fun, and that play could be harnessed for educational purposes. Now these ideas, um, Locke's ideas in some thoughts concerning education were absolutely radical. Uh, given that prior to the Enlightenment, early modern Europe largely regarded play as a potentially dangerous, sinful dissipation, a waste of time, and play was not something that was regarded as exclusively for children. Um, in any case, cultural attitudes towards play prior to the Enlightenment were ambivalent and largely negative. Uh, Locke's book represented the beginning of the modern educational toy, and specifically he called for fathers to transform old gambling dice um, into alphabet blocks. Printed letters were to be cut and pasted onto the faces of old die so that learning might become a fun game. Now, um, while he did not manufacture them himself, manufacturers followed suit and produced these so-called lock blocks, familiar to us as alphabet blocks. Later, the Prussian educational reformer Friedrich, uh, Friedrich Froebel, famous to us as the founder of kindergarten, devised his famous series of gifts and occupations to be used in the kindergarten curriculum. Now, we don't have time to go into the curriculum of kindergarten here, but suffice it to say that kindergarten um, curriculum was very different then, very radical 
in its spirituality and its emphasis on uh, learning by doing and actually de-emphasis of reading. In any case, not construction toys per se, his uh, gifts introduce children uh, to geometrical shapes and spatial relationships from the simple to complex. Froebel hoped that children would be better able to understand the relationship between part and whole, um, and hence the unity of all things. In a broad sense, educational toys like the Froebel gifts or the lock blocks were the root of 19th century uh, building toys. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, a dynamic relationship existed between full-scale architecture and construction toys. Um, and these, this, this relationship was informed by contemporary debates over uh, building styles and materials. But again, the relationship between full-scale building and toys. Through miniaturization, clay became a testing ground for further full-scale material um, implementations. Many modernist architects um, were engaged in toy making and used um, uh, toys as a prototype for their full-scale uh, work. In Germany, the most recognizable construction toy in the 19th century was the Anker building set. The most recognizable construction toy until engineering sets like Meccano or the Erector set. The Anker uh, building block set was invented in 1877 by German architect and engineer Gustav Lilienthal. Construction, construction sets like the Anker blocks were marketed for boys to shape them into future engineers, architects, or innov innovators. The, the Anker Steinbaukasten, the Anker building sets, consisted of dense blocks in red, blue, and cream, as to emulate red, uh, red, brick, red brick, slate, and limestone, and became the first building set that was additive in nature. You could add to the building sets and progressively uh, accumulate more. Despite the presence of complex instructions and pictures and models like this, um, the anchor building sets allowed for building configurations that were relatively less constrained by the formal limitations of the blocks themselves. Um, in some ways, uh, so for instance, some building sets only had sort of pre-built components that you could put together in a limited number of ways. So in some ways, this um, set was a first precedent towards the open-endedness of the famous Lego system of play. So although players could invent unlimited new configurations, the marketing materials and instruction booklets tended to favor historicist styles, especially the Gothic and Romanesque styles that were popular during the Wilhelmine era, and tended to favor structures like castles, cathedrals, and fortresses that related to Germany's mythic past. As compared to mainstream commercial toys like the Anchor Set, artistic building blocks um, designed around the turn of the 20th century were supposedly more open-ended, supposedly non-prescriptive, um, and um, were, at least in some cases, not predetermined to favor a particular style. All of this in the hopes of fostering children's creativity and imagination. Continuing our survey of Viennese secessionist toys, here we can see two versions of the city 
divine, designed by Vinovekta to co-founder Coleman Moser. Uh, the blocks consisted of basic geometrical shapes, and despite a lack of instructions or directions uh, that was supposedly open-ended, tended to favor streamlined modernist design. On this note, it's perhaps not surprising that modernist design history has tended to treat toy design as an aberration for more serious pursuits. And this is particularly pronounced when uh, canonical male greats, famous artists like Moser, are concerned. It's something that is only a footnote in monographs on the artist. Or it is sort of pigeonholed as something they pursued in private uh, for their own children. Uh, toy making has been viewed largely as women's work, um, perhaps because toys are viewed as trivial. Um, another example of Vini's secessionist toys would be the factory building set by Wiener Vecher to co-founder Josef Hoffmann. Um, did these modernist toys really allow for more creativity? Well, the formal limitations of Josef Hoffmann's factory toy actually allowed very little room for children's creativity, basically because children could only, um, uh, children could merely arrange these pre-built components. Now, I tend to view this Hoffmann factory toy as an adult joke. The toy is, this, this factory set is not without a great deal of irony, uh, given Hoffmann's vehement rejection of serial factory production he was in favor of luxury handcraft, as well as his um, uh, abhorrence of, uh, of the machine aesthetic and German industrial design. Um, in Germany, at the Weimar Bauhaus, uh, Alma Buscher is best known even today for her 1923 uh, Bau, uh, Bau, uh, ship or ship building set. Painted in basic primary colors, it is, it is an interlocking 22-piece building set that can be arranged in multiple configurations. So in a long sense, it relates to the trajectory of the anchor sets. Uh, painted in basic primary colors, it is, it is an interlocking 22-piece building set that can be arranged in multiple configurations. But despite this, um, much like the secessionist set or even the secessionist dollhouse, the set seemed to favor a certain aesthetic style, um, which would be the clean lines and reductive shapes of German industrial design. Uh, one final example of a modernist artistic toy uh, made in Germany would be um, the uh, Fairy Palace, designed by the architect Bruno Taut in uh, around 1919. This was also a building set and was comprised of 62 glass blocks, including cobalt blue glass columns, red and yellow glass spheres, uh, green and orange cubes, and gem cut, gem cut glowing stones. Like jewels, the blocks appeared like precious stones that embodied the fantastic potential of crystalline configurations and exemplified uh, uh, Tout's prophecy of the use of a futuristic architecture made of glass. Like previous examples, though, modernist architectural toys were sometimes less about their actual play value to children than their experimental aesthetic value to their adult 
makers. So I'll conclude with, these, with some food for thought. Then as now, parents tend to put much stock in selecting the good toy for their children. Which material is best, plastic or wood? Um, uh, what, uh, how, do, how do parents, how do, how do we balance uh, selective restraint with the desire and desirability for novelty? But while the belief that better toys uh, make better children is certainly true, it is much more difficult to measure toys' tangible development or educational effects on children. Let me say that again. It deserves emphasis. While the belief that better toys make better children, while this belief is certainly true, is this rooted in any material reality? It is very difficult to measure uh, toys' tangible developmental or educational effects on children. So can test results be linked to the use of any specific educational toy? That's difficult to do. Likewise, while many uh, toy companies touted their toys as speaking to particularly uh, German design qualities or speaking to particularly Germanic values, such claims say less about such toys' actual design qualities than to the discursive claims made upon them. German dolls were remarkably similar to French fashion dolls and vice versa. So can toys embody particular national qualities or particular um, regional qualities? Likewise, even folk art toys from certain regions uh, and folk art toys were believed to index particular regional and national styles. Even folk art toys from certain regions could be remarkably similar to folk art toys from other regions. So despite the supposedly, despite the supposedly child-centered perspective of modernist artistic toys that were conceived through a childlike aesthetic, modernist toys uh, could often be remarkably simmer, similar to past examples or even mainstream factory toys. Uh, we discussed how the, the secessionist dollhouse, despite its reformist impulses, was actually sort of like the very earliest dollhouses as being a collector's item for the collector's cabinet of adult collectors, depicting the residents in miniature. What has not changed since 1900 or before is the anxiety surrounding consumption and toy buying for children. We have dealt with changing discursive prescriptions, stressing abundance and restraint, and changing constructions of the good toy. What precisely is the good toy? Which material is best? Is it better to stimulate children through more novelty or less um, at all? Now, ultimately, these questions might best be left to children themselves, and which I invite you to consider for yourself. So thank you very much for listening uh, to this lecture, which I've offered in conjunction with the Museum of German American Heritage in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Uh, the link to Childhood by Design is found below.